Helo a chroeso i bodlediad yr Academy Genedlaethol ar gyfer arweinyddiaeth a ddysgol yng Nghymru. Podlediad sy'n rhannu materion ac arferion arweinyddiaeth allweddol ar draws y sector addysg yma yng Nghymru ac yn rhyngwladol. Hello and welcome to the podcast from the National Academy for Educational Leadership in Wales, a podcast that shares key leadership issues and practices across the education sector here in Wales and internationally. I'm Simon Roberts and I'm an Academy Associate with the Leadership Academy and Head Teacher of My Sabrina Primary School and Special Needs Unit in Pontypridd. This episode features Major Marcus Heslock from the Royal Tank Regiment. A 31-year career has given him unique experiences and the opportunity to lead soldiers in some of the most challenging environments. He's an experienced leader who uses his own experiences as a lens to explore leadership, coaching and mentoring. Now, like to welcome Marcus um, to join us and for uh, for us to to listen to what you've got to tell us about leadership, Marcus Kroeser. Welcome. Uh, Tegwin, thank you. Good morning, everyone. I am um, a little bit overwhelmed, I suppose, by being asked to come along today and um, give you um, a small snapshot into my leadership experiences and how that might assist the National Academy and uh, the education sector in Wales going forward. And um, I suppose straight off the bat, what I would say is that I've been hugely um, uh, satisfied to see that already you're on a critical path as a national academy in achieving what is absolutely key in leadership, and that is broader education, uh, looking at your organisational culture, um, making sure that you um, educate each other. There's broad awareness, uh, and it's a lifelong learning process, which I'm all sure you are uh, familiar with, given your areas of expertise. But with leadership in particular, one size doesn't fit all. And certainly in military context, what was happening in the Crimea isn't necessarily uh, right and proper to be executed on the battlefields of today. And, and therefore, leadership evolves over time. So why am I here? I suppose I'm here because a Tegwin asked me to come along and, and waffle for 40 minutes, but also to um, maybe what's unique about myself in the military is I am 30 years in. So I've seen an evolution in a geopolitical sense. I joined as a young soldier at the age of 16. So uh, I've been on the receiving end, certainly sort of uh, poacher turned gamekeeper in certain sense uh, when it comes to leadership. I've been on the receiving end of some pretty atrocious leadership and I've experienced some exceptional stuff as well uh, in multiple countries across the world. Um, Multiple tours, the world that we were living in 30 years ago is very different to the world we're in today and the military is no different. We've shrunk in size by uh, almost unrecognizably and that brings its own challenges as well because the workload doesn't seem to have shrunk either. So it brings uh, parallels between the education sector uh, and the military uh, and the Ministry of Defence. So soldier first, officer second and very much a practitioner of leadership rather than an academic and although I study leadership through professional curiosity um, and also the military has given me a pathway to go from young 16 year old boy with some pretty bog standard average GCSEs to 
uh, an MBA and a master's and very grateful that they funded my way through that as well. What they expect in return is some academic thinking, uh, some real thought provoking analysis and constant improvement. And that's part of my organizational culture. Um, so that's me really in a nutshell. I think uh, education is the key. And like I say, I think you're on a critical path, which will serve you well in the decades to come and the generations that you will affect. Um, I am absolutely terrified uh, of sitting here in front of so many people from an education sector. I think I would much rather face the Taliban than a hundred teachers uh, or people in the education sector any day of the week. But um, I'm here to help. I want to make uh, leadership uh, more engaging, uh, emphasize the importance of it. So hopefully in some way I can help. So the way I'm going to break it down and accepting that 40 minutes isn't a huge amount of time and um, I'm more than happy to keep it conversational in style. And when we go to the Q&A session a little bit later, um, really do challenge me on some of the stuff I've said, or if I haven't said enough about it, then quiz me and I'll, I'll happily go into a little bit more detail. Quite happily do that. So I'll talk about why the leadership in the military is maybe unique. Uh, why do people uh, have a natural curiosity about leadership in the military? Why do people assume that the military has exceptional leadership? Um, and uh, and what, my thoughts on that. I'll then draw some parallels between uh, the education sector, not just in Wales, but across the planet um, and the military and, and sort of shared experiences maybe some contemporary issues that we're all facing and some thoughts about that. Um, because of the time constraints, I'll just give you my sort of key bottom line up front, if you like, my key takeaways. Um, and then um, Tegerman was interested in, in um, what I read um, professionally and, and for fun. And uh, I'll steer you towards some resources that, help me and uh, certainly help me professionally, but also helps promote that culture that um, I talk about, which is so very important when you're trying to uh, make a difference. Uh, it's all about uh, the, the organization as a whole, rather than just the individual leader. Um, so I'll talk about the books I'm reading and why I've read them. And then I'll steer you towards some websites, which I think are fascinating as well. Um, and then and then one valuable resource, which is on your own doorstep, which is another reason why I'm here. Um, Wales is blessed with quite a lot of people in the industry that are there to support the education sector. And I think that's very important as well. So in terms of um, military leadership in the round, um, it's very much a uh, strong organisational culture, uh, almost tribal in that sense, I wear the accoutrements of one particular organization, the Royal Tank Regiment, but you could meet somebody who's been in the army as long as I from a different walk of life, different regiment, and we'd almost be very, very different. But we all come together under one strong organizational identity. And that comes really from right in the beginning. And the, the hierarchical system in the military is there for a reason to allow us to explore leadership, um, it's very black and white. You know, there, there is a higher rank and therefore that is a position of authority. Therefore, they are the leader, regardless of whether it's a leadership focused uh, role or not. So everyone accepts the hierarchy, which makes life a little bit easier. It means that it's, uh, there's less opportunity for people to say no. Whereas I think in your world, 
uh, quite a few people can disagree quite openly in a hierarchical system such as the military it makes it very difficult uh, because you there was an assumption that the higher up the rank you are the more knowledge you have and the skill skills that you have will be better placed to execute whatever we're trying to achieve there's a strong team ethos i think if you know anybody in the military you'll be i would be surprised to find anybody that is very uh, self-promoting uh, it's less about the individual. It's always about the team. It's about the mission. It's about getting it done. And when something amazing happens, you find that um, it is ordinarily um, the strength of the team that has seen that through. So there's a strong team culture there as well. Tegwin, can you just give me a thumbs up to let me know that my my volume, my yeah, great. Okay, sorry if anybody's lost me there. Um, the military is very good at education at every level. It starts at recruit training. Some young 16-year-old um, soldier will be exposed to the Army's values and standards almost day one. And they're measured against those values and standards from a very uh, early age. And it sees them all the way through their career. And it's not just strap lines. It's not just something that goes on a board and we all look at and we pretend that we understand what it means. Uh, we have to live these values and standards 24-7. So it's almost buying into the, uh, the, ma the maxims, the mantra, uh, and genuinely believing in the power of those values of courage, discipline, integrity, loyalty, respect for others, selfless commitment. All those things are absolutely underpinned uh, in every serv service person's life, and they are expected to... Uh, live by those, whether they're off duty or not. Uh, the standards are very clear, and that's what we use to to discipline individuals um, and make sure that everything is lawful, appropriate, and professional. And if we fall below those standards, when a soldier is disciplined, he is educated as to why he has uh, fallen short of one of those standards or one of the values that we hold. So it's really important. What I would say is that there is a safe space in the military for leaders to grow. And I think if you can create that within the education sector where leaders don't feel as if they have to do it a certain way, uh, that they have freedom of expression and freedom of movement. Over my career, I have changed leadership styles countless amounts of time. And whether I was a very uh, autocratic, direct, robust leader, very pace setting, uh, get in, get the job done, uh, casualties of war in terms of people you either on board or you're not that style is appropriate in certain circumstances but what I've learned over my career is that one size doesn't necessarily fit all and you need to temper your um, your leadership style I'm a huge advocate of emotional intelligence uh, that is a whole domain in itself in terms of education I'm convinced that sort of 90% of um, competencies required by successful leaders sit firmly in the um, social and emotional domains. So understanding how humans operate on a very basic level will serve you well in understanding yourself, uh, understanding the uh, your own biases and how to manage yourself first and foremost, but then later how to uh, really understand the group context empathize, sympathize, and then build those sustainable relationships. Uh, let's, building something fantastic for the future rather than damaging stuff along the way. 
that's incredibly important. Um, the Army also has a leadership code, uh, and I won't take you through it now. Uh, it's an acronym. Leaders is an acronym. Uh, starts with um, uh, lead by example, uh, encourage thinking, etc. And you can find these online. So if you, you Google the Army leadership code, again, that is a, a, a tool, uh, something that goes in a notebook. It could be on a, a credit card style crib sheet that goes in a young soldier's top pocket which will help them uh, understand what it is they're trying to achieve. So really useful. All of that context about military leadership equals boundaries for service people. And like children, uh, boundaries work. Uh, that gives them a safe space to operate, freedom of expression that I've talked about before. Um, it encourages openness as well. I don't feel as if I'm going to be judged. I feel as if I can... Um, uh, work as, as hard as I can and, and experiment with different types of leadership uh, and ultimately creates this culture that the British Army has um, and provides me uh, with a toolbox of um, skills and competencies that I can use on a daily basis, whether I'm in conflict or in the office. Um, I can use them on a, on a daily basis and, and ultimately you, you hopefully have results because everybody buys in. I suppose the news flash is that we get it wrong and sometimes we get it wrong spectacularly. Um, and um, we'll go on to parallels between the education sector and the military now, but when we get it wrong, and I talk about we as, as everyone on this call right now, when we get it wrong, uh, it could really hit the headlines. It could be that sort of sensational tabloid moment, uh, which damages our culture, which damages our reputation. Uh, and paints a very different picture of how we operate um, to society. And if uh, we are to achieve what we want to within education or military or the Ministry of Defence, then we need to make sure that our reputation is upheld and uh, we uh, protect what we're trying to achieve. So, you know, small strategic errors can have a disproportionate effect. And I think that adds pressure um, and I suppose that's the first thing that we have in common, the parallels between the education sector and the military, is that uh, we are all under pressure, uh, whether that's time pressure or the uh, senior leadership teams and the head teachers that I've come across. They are under huge budgetary pressure ordinarily, uh, something that I don't necessarily have to look at on a daily basis. But I certainly need to offer you, the taxpayer, offer uh, value for money and if I'm not offering value for money, then I'm probably falling short. So budgetary constraints are what we share in common. There is a rapidly changing landscape. Um, society is evolving. Uh, global rules-based order uh, is no longer the norm. There are states that are challenging that uh, theory. Uh, and we have to accept that we have a generation of young people who demand more, uh, demand more from the workplace, demand more from leaders, um, and they wish to bring more than just uh, a defined set of skills to the workplace. They might wish to bring more in the social space to the workplace, and they are incredibly well connected, as we are all becoming or are currently. So we're dealing with a changing social landscape as well. And that's a real challenge in the education sector because you're not only looking at your workforce, the people that are 
passing on this valuable information to our our young um, people, but also the young people themselves. You know, huge amounts of anxiety associated with social phenomenons. And how do you deal with that as a leader? And how do you deal with that in the workspace? Stress, anxiety, depression, and that's probably just the staff room. Um, you know, and then you go on to into a classroom or you go into public domain and you find that everywhere you look. And it's, so it's bringing clarity to uh, a very confusing situation. So that's a, something we share in common. I've already talked about the fact that we are in high risk environments. Uh, that's uh, that that stands to reason uh, with that risk comes uh, reward as well. So accepting uh, that is really important. What strikes me about the education sector, and I've said this a few times, is that, I, I mean, I joined the military because I come from a military family. Uh, that was a driving factor in why I wanted to be in the army. I had a bit of a love affair with tanks on a sort of boy playground level. Um, but also I was driven by service as a um, brought up in a military education environment, a young Cub Scout. Um, you know, I, I was it was service was always in me. Uh, I come from communities where it was right and proper to look after each other. Uh, so service was very uh, important uh, to me. When I meet young educators, uh, that shines through for me as well, that desire to help, that desire to uh, develop people and make them achieve uh, what they believe to be impossible, to uh, get the best out of them, let them be the best possible version of, of themselves. So that true, very pure reason to be in education shines through. What also shines through is very quickly how people become disenchanted. And it always amazes me how many young teachers don't necessarily um, enjoy what they do. Uh, and it, also, it makes me wonder why uh, so many start looking over the fence at other career opportunities or why the education sector can't necessarily retain the talent because it is such an attractive career. And one of the things that uh, we share uh, between education and the military is that we struggle to retain our talent. Uh, and a lot of that is not necessarily down to the organization per se. It's more to do with the individual leadership that they come across and the opportunities that are presented to those individuals. Some of the very best talent that I've discovered has been in the most unassuming places, the, the latest guy or girl to join the team. Uh, you, my bias would tell me that they, they're a passenger, they're going to sort of do as they're told. Open the floor, explore their background. Uh, take a step back. I think what I was saying is that we have uh, quite a lot of uh, parallels between our industries and, and therefore... Um, really important that we we learn from each other and i think it's fascinating that we can do that in this type of environment as well so some of the contemporary issues that we're both facing the military has been uh in certain circumstances been working dispersed and i know a lot of you are working from home right now and uh with the pressures of covid19 and a global pandemic comes challenges when we return to the workspace and uh return to normal or whatever is coined as the new normal will bring challenges in terms of anxiety and uh, determination to uh, pick up from where we left off and, and do a regain in what we've lost. And I know already that it's affecting the education sector in terms of um, 
examinations and things like that, it's going to be tough for teachers on the coalface to be able to do a regain. So, um, and there will be an element of your workforce that will be uh, vulnerable. And it's about how your leaders deal with that vulnerability and build resilience. Uh, and it's how the team can come together to, to really support those individuals. Uh, the phrase that always makes me chuckle is the snowflake generation, the generation which would suggest that we have groups of people that are fragile and the first sign of heat would dissipate. Um, that's not really my experience at all. Um, what I would say is that um, the it's a throwaway line, really, for me. Uh, and one of your greatest resources is probably right underneath your nose. Uh, so it's having a very close look at the skill sets that are available to you, either at a national level uh, or at a very uh, intimate level in a uh, an education environment. Um, I don't I don't uh, confess to being a neuroscientist. Absolutely far from it. But what I am really fascinated by is the um, it's worthwhile understanding um, why we do certain stuff. You know, why we react in a certain way. Um, we all have an open system. Our brains work on an open system. We have a limbic system, which allows us to uh, react, feel uh, in certain ways. And I think it's uh, fascinating that a little bit of education in that area can open a doorway into understanding why certain people are reacting in certain stressful uh, situations. Uh, we all know that on a real level that anger, uh, outward anger, stress and frustration could be hiding um, vulnerability uh, and even love in certain circumstances. Um, so these outward expressions of emotion could be masking what is really going on with those individuals. I think on a very basic level, understanding the sort of basic neuroscience will, as a leader, support you in trying to understand why certain people are reacting in a certain way. So, um, uh, on, a, on a, a very straightforward example, you always you know who the mood hoover is, right? You're on a meeting uh, and that person walks into the room and then all of a sudden everyone just goes, oh, you know, the shoulders drop. Everyone is exhausted before that person's even opened their, their mouth. And you need to, there's two ways of dealing with that. You can, you can protect yourself, put the shield up and just plow on and get through and accept that this person is a particularly challenging individual. Or as, as a leader, you could really... You, with the power of language, try and ascertain exactly what is going on with that person and why are they having that effect? Maybe it's just self-prophesizing. Maybe they're just doing it because they're always doing it. Fundamentally might be negative, but understanding why and how best that they can support the remainder of the team will pay dividends in the future. Uh, you know, it's uh, emotional contagion. It's like um, laughter. It's infectious. Um, a little bit like watching someone yawn, uh, eventually you'll join in. Um, and the same goes for leadership. If you are demonstrating emotional contagion in as much that you are a listener and you are uh, demonstrate self-awareness and empathy, then this will pay you back, in my experience anyway. Um, the last one I want to talk about really is something called mission command. Uh, in challenging situations, uh, mission command is the ability for the person in authority to be able to give 
uh, his subordinates the end state. I require you to achieve this. Um, but mission command principles are based on not telling those individuals how to do their job. So I want you to achieve this. Um, uh, your constraints are, your freedoms and constraints are these. Um, over to you. Um, and what I've learned in my career time that uh, with every plan that is trying to be executed, there will always be a cohort of people that are inherently negative or they will try to pick holes in the solution that you're trying to uh, promote. By opening the floor with mission command and allowing people to express themselves and get the job done in a way that they see most suitable is allowing them to be emotionally and physically invested in the solution. And therefore, it's very difficult for people to pick holes in a plan that they have been part of developing. So uh, something that's worked with great success for me is allowing people the freedom to get on with it. I want you to achieve that. Of course, there's a leap of faith here, which involves a huge amount of trust. And um, trust is a, a separate conversation altogether. But um, trust that works in your favor will pay you back uh, in spades, but also the benefits for the team cannot be measured. Um, so trust is underpins everything that I try and do uh, now anyway. Uh, there was probably a lack of trust in my early career, uh, believing that I knew best and that was the best way to do it, do as I say. Um, but trust is absolutely critical. So those are my sort of key uh, key points in dealing with promoting resilience and developing organizational culture and 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 maybe sort of giving you a few ideas of, of, of how you might be able to achieve that in your quite diverse groups. But I suppose my main takeaways would be that your main effort should be on organizational culture. Uh, what do you stand for in the National Academy? What is the academy trying to achieve um i wrote down um from the website which was clarity and coherence to leadership um i think that's fantastic because that is exactly what my organization tries to achieve on a daily basis as well we work off the um principles of abc so accuracy brevity and clarity really important to um uh, pay specific attention to all of that, whether you're communicating verbally or whether you're communicating um, uh, electronically or ho however, accuracy, brevity and clarity uh, will serve you well as, as principles going forward. But certainly clarity and coherence with the National Academy will serve you well. And you need to continue to invest in uh, what is uh, going to pay you back uh, eventually. Um, I would I encourage you all to be as self-aware as possible. And there's lots of people out there that will help you with mindfulness and uh, personal skills like this. Um, whether that works for everybody, I'm not too sure. Um, I consider myself to be reasonably mindful anyway, and I do scoff a little bit at mindfulness. But uh, I've also seen the power uh, that it, it can bring to a team as well. So I would never dismiss that. Uh, but certainly be as self-aware as you can. Understand your own biases and understand how to manage yourself. If you're in no space to regulate yourself, then there's no hope really of being um, an exceptional leader. 
Um, whatever values and standards you adopt within your education sector, you really must encourage people to truly live by those um, and believe them. If they're unbelievable or unattainable, then you are you're not in a great space to begin with. So they need to be succinct, ABC again, uh, but also um, supportive as well and something you can hang your hat on, physically hang your hat on. Um, driving your team's internal state. So what I mean by that is talking to the heart and the mind. So being able to uh, really understand the challenges, the sort of social context. And then when you're building those relationships with the key competencies that you inherently have as educators, um, being able to really talk to those individuals and get the job done. I touched on it before about um, not being fixed on any one particular style. Um, the, the visionary, the coach, the mentor, the, the feel good, the guy or girl that buys social capital by making sure everybody's happy. The consensus leader, the, the person that wants everyone to be completely content. I mean, those are good. Those are positive leadership styles. But also, I'm pretty convinced that there is a, a space for the pace setter, the guy that's uh, or girl that's going to come in and achieve something quite quickly, robust style leadership, command and control, which are inherently discussed neg negatively. Uh, but I think there is a time and a space and you might find that in your own areas that you might need to evolve those leadership styles. The, the four pillars of emotional intelligence will hold... Um, resonance with you in terms of and i've mentioned them already um the the pillars are uh self-awareness self-management um social awareness and uh uh relationship building those are the four key areas and out of that depending where you look there are competencies 12 i think originally with a theory uh but there's you know 20 30 different competencies uh conflict management influence uh, inspiration, um, all these things are, are critical um, if you are to uh, adopt a, an emotionally intelligent uh, leadership style going forward um, with a changing political and social landscape as well. I think it's, it's quite important. So that's re it really. I'll, I'll, I'll briefly go through um, what I'm reading right now. So there are uh, three, well, three that I've read and one that I'm currently reading. The last three, first one was a book called The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle, um, which speaks to uh, organizational behavior, a little bit of psychology in there as well, um, how we think, how groups really work. It's, it's digestible. It's not too heavy. It's not huge. I think it's on Audible as well. So when you're driving in a car, it's reasonably useful. Um, but I found that particularly useful. Actually, a quote springs to mind um, from Harry Truman, um, probably one of the less inflammatory political leaders in America. But he uh, once said that not all readers are leaders, but certainly all lead leaders are readers. So, again, it's, it, it feeds that education um, uh, um, story that we're, we're telling at the moment is that education is absolutely key in developing your leaders as well. So 
Uh, the other one was a, um, one of my favorite books is a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins, which is a five year study um, about companies that are um, good. And he defines what good is, you know, sustained improvement, uh, profitable, et cetera, et cetera. And these are all companies that we're familiar with. But then he identifies a group of companies which are great. These companies made a sustained improvement. They, uh, they were able to achieve greatness for longer, more profit, more influence, whatever that case may be. Um, and um, talks about culture and strategy as well. And interestingly, he talks about the leadership that's involved in these companies and what made the great companies different to the good companies. And a, a quick anecdote was um, to do with what's known as the window and the mirror. And some of you may be familiar with this, but in times of hardship, when things were not going well, the good leaders would look out the window and they would identify him, her, them, they, they are to blame for the hardship. The complete reverse was true for the great companies. The leaders of those great companies would look in the mirror and say, times are hard. What have I done? What can I do more of? So the reverse was true. And of course, when times were fantastic, the good leaders had a propensity to look in the mirror and go, I'm pretty great. I'm pretty fantastic. Um, and the reverse was true for the great companies. The great leaders were looking out of the window and say, we are really knocking this out of the park because of them, because of him, because of her. And I thought that was a fantastic analogy of, of a very simple um, uh, trend with uh, sustained improvement and great companies. And uh, that certainly speaks to me. Uh, there's also a very famous book by Simon Sinek, who is um, uh, very popular within leadership domains called Leaders Eat Last. Uh, that is scientific, a scientific based book, uh, which is it talks about the neurochemicals in our mind and why people do certain stuff. And I've alluded to that a little bit earlier on. Uh, and the, the book is titled from a from a, a maxim that comes from the U.S. Marine Corps and most militaries do as well, where soldiers will always eat before officers the uh, tipping the hat to the fact that your most valuable resource is the soldier who is um, is doing exactly as you asked of him. And it's only right and proper that um, they, in a, in a small way, uh, are um, praised in, in such a way. So, yeah, fascinating book. Uh, and uh, I don't read all. Um, uh, there are some nonfiction in there as well. I'm, I'm currently reading. I'm halfway through a book um, called One Second After, which is a um, post-apocalyptic thriller about uh, terrorist organizations using electromagnetic pulse weapons uh, and how really thought-provokingly devastating that would be on, our, on a country the size of the, the, the United States and um, uh, the challenges. And incidentally, the reason why I'm reading that is because um, uh, a US general insisted that every desk officer in the Pentagon read this because it is uh, scarily um, accurate. Um, so a bit dark, uh, but in terms of how to cope in a, in a, in a post-apocalyptic world. Uh, that's what I'm also reading as well. In terms of websites, and there are many, many, many websites, uh, three in particular. There's one 
three by five leadership.com. So that's three times five leadership.com. Uh, and that is born out of great ideas on a three by five crib cart that you, uh, you find in most stationary cupboards. Uh, and the idea is that these nuggets of uh, leadership knowledge can fit on one of these three by five cards. Uh, and it's an electronic resource which you can access, have a read of the different uh, challenges that face people in the military. Most of these are military based, but there's lessons in there for absolutely everybody. The next one is uh, from the greenbook.com. Uh, green book is a common reference to uh, a military notebook. So from the green notebook.com. Again, a, a fascinating uh, low level insight diary esque uh, experiences, anecdotes, vignettes from people that are having leadership challenges and, and what they can help. There's another one uh, very similar to that called groundedcuriosity.com as well, um, which is uh, equally fascinating. And let's face it, there's not a great deal out there that's new under the sun. Uh, you're not the first to discover, maybe you are, but uh, very rarely people are the first to discover um, a particular leadership challenge. And um, long may this continue, this collaboration between the different sectors in our country where uh, I can learn from you, you can learn from me, and uh, places like the National Academy thrive because we have this inherent thirst for knowledge. Um, I would caveat all of those books and those uh, websites with, you know, one size doesn't fit all. It's not, it's not for everybody, but uh, if you have an inquisitive mind, uh, you'll find some, some really useful stuff out there, especially in the ac academic domain, and you'll find that it's been cited a few thousand times. It's probably got some substance to it as well. Um, so that's it. I suppose uh, the final one is is resources right on your doorstep. I, I need to um, uh, I support a lady called Tracy Jones, who works for a company called Chrysalis Mindset, who I know Tegwin and the National Academy have used in the past. Now, Tracy is not unique. There are other ladies and gentlemen out there that deliver this um, coaching and uh, support at the very highest levels and very lowest levels. Well, I would say if you're in the education sector and certainly um, Welsh speaking as well, which is incredibly important given the diversity across your nation, is that people like Chrysalis Mindset and Tracy Jones are really valuable. Um, and um, uh, I would encourage you to continue to look at those resources, which, you know, they, they cost. But how serious are you about investing in your National Academy and about investing in leadership? That's the question you should be asking yourself so that's me really so a quick check on the time i think i'm uh there or thereabouts tegwin i don't know if you want to um quiz me on anything that i may have dropped out in terms of audio apologies if that's happened but uh, i've had this is a fascinating opportunity for me I, I really do genuinely value um what you guys do on a daily basis people say that my job is particularly difficult uh, i would i would challenge that i would much rather have to deploy overseas occasionally rather than go into a classroom of 14 year olds uh, on a daily basis that petrifies me but um, hats off and uh, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to to have a chat um, and and learn from you as you learn from me. Hello everybody have you all join us and hi Marcus it was lovely this morning to meet you again <laughs> Thank you so much for giving us your thoughts. 
and experiences of leadership this morning. Now, I was very lucky I met you and you mentioned, um, mindfulness, you, you mentioned um, how you spoke to some of us in a coaching group. It was an executive coaching group with Tracy and I was very yeah. one of those participants uh, with Chrysalis Mindset and she was absolutely fabulous and bringing you in we were so intrigued as a, a group of colleagues so this has been even more interesting and we really want to get some questions asked um because i'm sure it'll be interesting for everybody we've got lots of questions coming through at the moment so take your time we've also got it's not just uh leaders within schools it's also the youth sector um HE leaders so I'm hoping to bring some of them in as well which will be great right so Marcus I'm going to start by inviting um, Jeremy in Jeremy was also somebody who you know I thought we'll start you off with somebody who you know (laughs) (laughs) Jeremy hi how are you hi good to see you again um, Marcus thanks for giving uh, your time we know you're probably right in the middle of training ready for deployment so perhaps having a half a day this morning to uh, to relax might be good for you. But um, after the last time, you really inspired me. And, and I went, I Googled um, Marcus Heslop, Major Marcus Heslop, to see what would come up. And I could see you are uh, decorated, you're a war hero. And, and I thought, wow, this guy is something. <laughs> this something. So, and then I, I actually looked, uh, Marcus, and unfortunately, in this instance, you died in uh, 1853 in the Boer War. <laughs> So it's obviously the wrong person there that's, um, that I found. But really, my, right. question, my question is around, uh, we had a long discussion about the trust that you have to develop in the army. We, we still have something called statutory performance management or appraisal in schools, which for me has never really worked. I'll be honest with you. It's not the kind of thing that, that has helped me in my career. Um, I'm wondering uh, how you develop this culture of trust in the armed forces, in the, in the army. You know, and, and also how you succession plan. You know, we've, you've talked about the Air Force, that I wasn't born in Blyde and I wasn't made in the Royal Navy. But it seems that people have a real opportunity in the forces to develop to, to, the, to the ranks through, through the levels. And I just wondered how you did that. Um, well, Jeremy, very kind. Um, I'm about as far from a decorated war hero as you can get, but um, that was that was definitely the chap in the uh, in the Boer War. But thank you. No, um, trust is a trust has been a, a, a huge part of my leadership journey on a personal level, only because there was a severe lack of that in my early years. And um, uh, there's a fascinating book, and again, I forget the author, but it's called The Speed of Trust, and it's a it's a recommended read for me because it pays huge dividends if you get it right and it is a real it for me is it's always been a, a leap of faith um and as i discussed in the break with a few people if, if you're in a position to bestow trust on a group an individual an organization immediately they recognize the weight of responsibility that comes with that trust and therefore what happens is they become invested in the outcome because they know that you are um, going out on a limb, demonstrating some vulnerability. And in return, you buy yourself some emotional credit and they want to support you. So um, in my experience anyway, and I'm sure there's plenty of examples of where it's gone terribly wrong, in my experience, that if I take that leap of faith, and even if it's a 50-50 judgment call on whether that individual can, 
and deliver what I think they can deliver. Bestowing that trust um, has always worked um, fantastically well for me. I said right at the beginning of the presentation that we tend to be tribal in our, um, our, our, our organisations. So the, the healthy banter between the Royal Air Force, the Navy and the Army um, is ever present and long may that continue because that's part of our fabric that helps us through particularly difficult times and builds resilience as well. But equally, I need to trust that those logisticians, those pilots, those seamen are going to be able to do their job because, you know, no man is an island, etc. I need to make sure that we are all of one company uh, and that we are all singing off the same hymn sheet in terms of that's what we're going to do. So trust on an individual level will pay you back. I'm convinced of that. And there's a famous example where Warren Buffett uh, did a multi-billion dollar deal on a handshake because he looked the other person in the eye and thought, you're a kindred spirit. You're someone I can do business with. Um, we have shared values. And I think that's key is having shared values. Um, and um, uh, trust on a broader sense within the organization that people are not going to let you down, that people understand this is the mission. This is what we want to achieve. And I trust that you're going to do your part in uh, in doing everything you can to uh, to see that through. So it's powerful. It's probably more powerful than anything else in terms of leadership. Uh, it's very difficult to achieve. As a younger leader, I was very uh, trust adverse. I would suggest I, I would I would be quite prescriptive in the way I wanted things done. Um, and I've learned over the time that trust will um, will pay you back. Hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. Just to just to, I'm I'm pleased to say that I think in the new reforms of education, the new curriculum, trust is being given back to teachers, and I think that's something that we've lacked for for many years. So we're going through that transition now. So thank you so much well, for that answer. No, I mean I just finished by saying that you know another conversation in the margins was that um, everyone has an opinion on how education should happen, whether that's a minister or. Uh, or whoever, they all seem to think that they're experts in how uh, our generations and young people should be educated. And I think that makes your job harder because, you know, no one's going to tell me how to operate a tank in a battle, but they're certainly going to try and tell you how to do your job. So um, it starts at the top, you know, so ministerially, trust needs to come down. And then, of course, once you receive that trust, you're more inclined to give it as well. Thank you. Thanks, Marcus. What I'm going to do, because quite a few of the groups, it turns out, they've been getting in touch, have been discussing, and this trust element has come out. It, it's really come out in all the groups. So I'm going to invite Ian Gerard, if that's okay, just to come in with sort of a subsidiary question, really, coming from that. Here he is. Sure. <laughs> As always. Yeah, my my, uh, my internet seems to be popping in a little bit, so, so if, if you miss half of this, I'm happy to repeat it. But... Um, um, yeah, I mean, thanks, Marcus, for this morning. Really, really enjoyed uh, listening to you and, and obviously chatting through um, with others uh, our thoughts on that. Um, I mean, just a similar question to some extent to, to Jeremy's, but, you know, I, I think it's really clear to to many of us that over recent um, recent months, I guess, you know, that there has been uh, a sort of um, a relaxing of some of the accountability measures that have been placed upon us as as head teachers and leaders in the sector. Um, and I think, you know, I feel at least, and, and I think others do as well, that that's been replaced by an element of trust. 
Um, and from our perspective, it, it would be really good to, to kind of see that continue. And I, I know that's an ongoing debate for, for many of us. Um, with, I wondered whether, you know, from your perspective, um, whether you've seen a change in the trust that others have placed in you from, you know, from above you, if you like, in the, in the pecking order, and whether that's uh, impacted on your leadership, uh, you know, of others. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And you cut out for a little bit, but I got the gist of the question. Um, okay. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think my personal feeling is that, um, uh, like the education sector, the military have been asked to do more with less. So when the finite resource, which is ordinarily money, is tight, um, you are leaning on your uh, talented people to be creative and innovative um, and to come up with solutions to, uh, you know, the vanguard of the fight to lead the good fight and, and do the best they possibly can with limited resources. That in itself is um, you need to bestow some trust on people to be able to achieve that. So I suppose to answer your question is that I felt the weight of responsibility when trust was bestowed on me. I felt a desire to not let that person down. It was liberating in as much that I felt that I had more freedom. I certainly had a, uh, felt that I had a voice now and I was being valued uh, because trust is bestowed on. You would never bestow trust on someone you didn't inherently uh, believe was positioned to be able to act appropriately anyway. So I felt as if I was always um, empowered because of that. And of course, if you have this healthy mix of trust, empowerment and freedom of manoeuvre, uh, you tend to have, uh, you, you'll get results. Uh, if you don't get the result you want, you'll certainly have a better picture of what's going on. So in your position, as an example, long may it continue that, you know, an element of trust is given to you. And, it, and I would argue that yeah, there's no one better placed than those people that are living the experience to either feed back into the regime where it's particularly challenging um, or um, how best to solve particular problems. And I think it's, it's too easy for people in ivory towers to pass judgment and be too prescriptive. So, so yeah, it's, um, it's fascinating. Long may it continue. It's a very difficult thing to achieve trust um, because you only have to get burnt once or twice and it damages your, your, um, your desire to keep operating in that environment. Um, sadly, we ordinarily go round the boy of talking about money. Uh, and when money is so tight, um, you can't afford for too many mistakes. Uh, and, and people tend to get twitchy when we're talking about, you know, millions of pounds worth of uh, money being invested. Um, so, yeah, there's pressure with that. Um, but, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think it's um, it will pay you back in, in spades. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Ian. Thanks for the question. Again, so many questions are coming through now, um, Marcus. And I think I'm going to call on somebody within the group who this would lead on to it a little bit. It's, it's about how do we lead effectively in this current climate that we're all in. Can I ask, is Owen Williams, can you come forward? <laughs> uh, yes, I'm, I'm here. Oh, thank you. Hi, Owen. Hi. Um, well, thank you for this morning. It was uh, absolutely fantastic, and uh, it, was, it was great uh, listening to your viewpoints uh, and your experiences. 
Um, what what I would like to to know from yourself is um, how how do head teachers lead effectively in the current climate when when we don't have the answers, uh, and you have to act upon it quite quickly um, in in your area of work. When you do get information, uh, you have to act upon it very quickly and very effectively. So, um, how how do you deal with that? Yeah. So um, uh, my world is 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 not that different if i'm honest i'm often asked to operate blind so with limited information and i think um the way that i support myself is by having um process uh, i'm quite a visual leader so having a process which allows me to essentially tick off a few boxes you know have i explored this you know what is the real situation um there's a great um it's a great theory. It's not really a theory, but it's um, leadership by walking about um, and uh, time, time spent. The, the, the principle is that time spent walking around, whether that's for me in a headquarters or you in your school, uh, listening to people, isolating groups away from their sort of middle management to get the grassroots truth. So what I would say is um, understand the problem first and how best you can affect that. And of course, you might have to resign yourself to the fact that you're going to have limited impact with the resources you have. But you're not going to know that unless you've gone down that rabbit hole to understand the problem in, in the entirety. You might be sat there in your office under huge amounts of pressure, um, thinking that the real issue, the crux of the issue is this. But when you walk the floor and you speak to the workforce, you might get a very different perspective. So I would say explore uh, everything at your disposal. Um, the power of a network will not let you down. So you will probably have in your community other head teachers. I have noticed actually that um, there tends to be a reluctance to share best practice. So if one school is doing particularly well, they they tend. I might be wrong, but they tend to keep that like a closely guarded secret. You know, this is our magic potion, and it's ours only. Uh, what I would encourage you all to do is is feed off each other and uh, and learn from each other's experiences. And like I said in the presentation, in my world, there's not ordinarily anything that's new under the sun. I can either learn from history or I can learn from contemporary thought. Um, but I'm, I've got to I've got to do the analysis. So it's, it's really analyzing that. Uh, the final part I would say, Owen, is that um, you can't solve it all on your own. Um, and. Um, being being honest about that will relieve some of the pressure uh, because I would bet my bottom dollar that you're going home every night going thinking to yourself, how on earth am I going to turn this around? What am I what can I do to make a tangible benefit or or difference to the school or the staff or whatever the case may be? Take that pressure away from yourself and say, I'm just going to get to the bottom of what the real issue is. And then I'm going to do some analysis and how you do that analysis. I don't envy you, my friend. I think you are in a challenging position. Um, but uh, process has always kept me straight. Uh, and there are times where you have to make a decision. And as long as you're prepared to look yourself in the mirror at the end of the night and say, I made that decision because it was in the best interest of the organisation, um, then um, looking at yourself in, in, objectively will, will serve you well. I don't really have anything else I can tell you apart from it's it's tough um surround yourself with an inner circle of people that you trust opinions that you trust use this network as well you know lots of great smart people 
uh, and collectively you'll you'll come to um, uh, balanced decisions for good or worse. That, that at least you know that you've you've done the analysis, and that's the key bit. Ho- hopefully that helps. Oh, that's great. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks very much, Owen. And it was great to hear some children as well, Owen. It was lovely hearing <laughs> the background. We do miss those children. <laughs> Following on from that, just a question um, that I'd like to pose myself, really. Around the issues of organisational pressures and stress, you know, in education, as a leader, as a head teacher, there's very much a sprint and start mentality. You know, we're all gearing up for the beginning of the term, if you like, come September, and it's nonstop. And then we, the stresses, I'm sorry, using the word stress, and I know it is thrown around, but, you know, leaders and staff worry about relent, re, sorry, relentless stress. Do you see that? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I've learned about your sector is that, you know, there is a societal um perception that teachers have this great um almost cat's got the cream career where you get amazing holidays uh and the school closes early and you all go home and you're able to lead these separate lives that is about as far from the truth from what i can gather as you can possibly get uh the reality is that you're uh, working later um under ridiculous pressures um, and then expected to uh, deal with not only public perception, but also then uh, never fail uh, because we're talking about children. So I do get that. I understand the pressures, something I wasn't really exposed to. I think um, exposing people to those types of challenges would help in, in the long term. In terms of dealing with those, it's very difficult. Um, Owen touched on the fact that there's a, there's a, it's a pressure cooker that you work in something's got to give you've got to you've got to release that pressure somehow and whether that is support networks within the organization whether that is a freedom to express yourself in different ways uh, the military tend to use sport um, as a way to um, uh, it was common practice in the sort of 80s and 90s where after a major incident possibly in northern ireland or elsewhere that the team of the, the the guys involved in that incident would go and play contact sport because it um, it calmed people down. It, it, it relieved some of that pressure. I'm not suggesting you all uh, go and go to the gymnasium when times are hard, but you need to find a way of paying yourself back and, and sustaining your teaching going forward, because otherwise you're going to burn out. Um, one of the things, interesting things in the military is that, Commanders at every level are instructed to enforce rest um, and uh, uh, recognizing the fact that somebody who is deprived of sleep, warmth, Maslow's hierarchy of needs at the very sort of basic level. If you take those things away for a sustained period of time, you don't really have a best version of, uh, of that uh, that soldier that you could possibly have. So enforced rest and um, recharging the batteries is a command function and you'll often see um, generals taking time out to go and recharge sleep you know eat well uh, and things like that so it's about recognizing your team how to uh, sustain for the long it's, a, it's definitely a marathon in the education sector not a sprint and I think um, accepting that you know life's a bit difficult um, how can we 
support each other and support networks are absolutely key. In the military, I'm blessed because, you know, everybody wants to, you know, come on, you know, we can do this together. It's very much that type of camaraderie, that esprit de corps. I think if you can mimic that to a degree in your organisation, then you're on a bit of a winner. Absolutely. I'm going to, on that note, because I can see another question has come through. Can I bring Helen, Helen Lidout? Can I bring you in, Helen? Are you there? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I am here. Sorry, I'm a little bit in the dark. There I am. I don't know what you can see. Um, hi, Marcus. We were talking in, in the group that I was in. I was asking whether you had any advice for head teachers as to how we maintain um, our self-regulation when effectively it's a little bit like we've been on a tour of duty, which we didn't anticipate since March. And there has been no off. There's been no letter. We've worked every school holiday. We're working ridiculous hours in very unpredictable situations. You know, I can plan the start of my week, what strategically I want to achieve. And if I've got a COVID case or something else goes in my school, that whole thing goes out the window. So we just welcome um, your advice, really, to us as school leaders as to... Um, how we can regulate ourselves when there is no off. You know, our, my understanding, and it might be wrong, might be naive, is that um, in the military you'd go on a tour of duty, but then you would have a period of time where you were just at rest, where nobody could contact you, and that's not the position within schools. You know, we're just on this relentless wheel um, without any preparation or training, um, and it's not just permeating. You know, we, we're kind of on the tour of duty whilst living in our homes as well. You know, my children are impacted, for example, when communicable disease, diseases throw my house bone and talk to my 15-year-old daughter before they talk to me. So I'd welcome your thoughts on that, please. No, I, um, I don't think there's an easy answer, Helen, to be honest with you. I think um, there needs to be a degree of uh, empathy and sympathy from uh, government in terms of what is uh, being achieved. Um the you are literally moving mountains on a weekly basis to be able to achieve that and quite selflessly um, not complaining too loudly about it this is the correct forum to sort of try and brainstorm how best to um, solve those types of problems but for me it, it is absolutely top down so the message that you've quite eloquently put to me um, needs to be you need to reassure yourself that uh, people above you have that loud and clear. So your communication skills up are, are absolutely um, uh, important. Um, and you then are putting yourselves in a situation where you need to ensure that those people are making sound decisions based on the reality. So going back to what I was telling Erin about understanding the context and knowing the situation, could you hand on heart now turn around and say that, uh, Let's think two up. So not your immediate superior, but his or her superior. Do they know what's going on right now? And if the answer is no, then they probably should. And it's about finding an avenue to make sure that this lived experience is being uh, talked about in the right circles. Because only then, in a very top-down organisation like government, uh, will change happen. Um, in the military, we are... Um, expected to operate one up and think two up uh, and so as an example I would be expected to do my boss's job um, but I would be thinking strategically about my boss's boss's job so uh, and that's in, that is absolutely explicit 
I'm expected to be able to do that. So worst case scenario, my boss is taking out the equation. I would be reasonably expected to step up. Uh, and the fact that I have situation awareness to up um, should see me through a particularly tricky time. So the reason why I mentioned that is that in your world, it's absolutely key that the lived experience and the challenges, that tour mentality, that um, almost relentless challenge that you're facing, all you can do is make sure that you are being heard and you're being heard in the right circles because then people will recognize very quickly that that is unsustainable. My personal opinion is that I could reasonably expect the education sector to pull out trees and keep going for months and months, but at some point it's going to fail. So how are you going to address that when it does fail? Are you actually going to run the car without any oil in the engine until it blows up? Or are you going to do something about it? Are you going to pull over and do some maintenance? Are you going to you know, check the tyres. Are you going to put some fresh fuel in, grab a sandwich from the SO? You know, uh, rubbish analogy, but you get the point that it's unsustainable. And the only thing you can realistically do is by um, communicating that up um, and seek support from left and right as well. Uh, I don't envy you, Helen, and I, and I thank you for your service, but um, those are the challenges that you face. Uh, thank you, Marcus. I think, um, you know, I don't think it was a rubbish analogy at all. I think that um, every single one of us will be able to um, recognise it. And um, it's actually been really powerful what you said. You know, I'm glad that this has been recorded because maybe I'll just and paste that little snippet that you've talked about and send that on to the, the powers that be. And I think that there is that kind of um, strength in numbers approach a little bit as well, because I'm yeah. not the only head teacher that's, you know, experiencing this. It, it's impacting not just on head teachers in Wales, you know, but, but elsewhere as well. Thank you. Yeah, the, the reality is the education secretary is not giving you a call in the evening to say, well done, Helen, thanks for all your efforts. Um, that's never going to happen, and nor should you expect it. So your support network is immediately, you know, the people you can see, touch, you know, travel to, communicate with on a personal level. But in, in acting change, change needs to come from above. Um, but you need to feed the feed the machine so you get the right output. Thank you, Helen. Thank you so much. And thank you, Marcus. I think, you know, as Helen said there, what you're saying is really, really powerful. And I think we have a role in the, within the Leadership Academy as well. You know, we really need to support and help our leaders with their well-being. You know, it's such an important part of the moment. But thank you so much. I'm going to carry on quickly because there's lots, lots more. Um, I'm going to bring in somebody now from the youth sector, which is which is really good to ask you a question. So is you are you there, Ewan? I'm hoping. Oh hello. Yes, I'm here. Yes. Um, <laughs> and it kind of follows on a little bit from kind of feeding the machine and kind of how we harness talent at all levels. Um, and I was just wondering what kind of structures do you have in place in the military to enable the 16-year-old recent recruit to influence or share ideas with senior managers? Yeah, so, um, Ian, nice to meet you. I think uh, uh, you, uh, you and I are very closely aligned in terms of the, the types of young adults that you work with and the raw material that I eventually receive. I think there is, it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning about this cultural shift. Um, if you think about the very best sports teams in the world, um, the fact that you're 
in the team, in the squad, means that you're good enough. So you made the cut because you're good enough. So that's the start point, really, for a young soldier, is that he's trained. He's made it to his unit. He's demonstrated along his pathway that he's good enough to be there on his own merits. Um, so that's the start point. So there's an immediate recognition that he's a trained individual. And then it doesn't always happen that the very best organisations and groups that I've seen operate are the ones that are completely inclusive. And those are the ones that you can turn around and say at the end of the orders group, well, what do you think? So I would also, I would always confirm information that's been passed on few Q&A. So if we're all on a briefing now and I was telling you exactly what we're going to do, at the end of that, I'm going to confirm knowledge by question and answer. So I would then turn around to you and you might be the youngest guy in the troop and I might turn around and say, what do you think? What do you think we're going to do when we get there? You know, and recognising the fact that over time, um, you know, that young person's experience might bring a completely different perspective onto the problem. So a very basic analogy or, or situation I found myself in was that we had a young, uh, a young lad who was uh, very technically able uh, and in Afghanistan was able to assist the local population in setting up a very basic uh, local area network because of the skills that he hadn't learned through basic training that were just part of him because he was naturally interested in that side of life. Um, and he was able to be able to provide technical advice to, to um, the, the local elders and made a huge impact because we were able to give them something that they didn't have. You know, it wasn't about money. It wasn't about security. All they wanted was connectivity. And this young lad had the key to that. Um, it's about unlocking potential. And I think if you are in a position where you can recognise potential in the individuals, and in some circumstances, you need to fight for that. I'm sure you've come across youngsters that are um, quiet, quite insular, uh, but actually have got a skill set that people would die for. You just have no idea that they were capable of doing this or doing that. So I think it's there. It's fruit. And I think you need to go on a harvest and try and find uh, find this fruit, this hidden fruit, uh, and make the most of, of what you've got. And I think going back to uh, what we were saying about in times of hardship and under pressure, um, in your desire to get the solution, the right solution, by exploring all these different avenues, you might just stumble across the answer or a hidden gem. So strength of the team, you know, the guy in the, the guy in the rugby team that has that particular skill set, not everyone can be a hooker, not everyone can be, you know, a winger, you know, and it's horses for courses in certain circumstances, but uh, you've got to go there to find out. You've got to, you've got to explore these opportunities, but uh, young people do not fail to amaze me in what they are capable of. And this, I talked about the snowflake generation. It suggests that they're not resilient at all, but I've seen in my situation, certainly on operations, I've seen, the complete opposite, um, you know, young soldiers doing incredible things and, uh, and long may it continue. While you're there, you are. Can I, can I just ask something else on the back of that then? How does the army identify, support and nurture its young aspiring leaders? So it goes back to um, education. So there are academic interventions all the way through. So let me, let me take an example. So Ewan's going to give me, 
a young 16-year-old lad who's from the wrong end of town. He's had a bit of a challenging 16 years thus far. Um, he doesn't have any academic qualifications. His numeracy and literacy might be very, very low. One of the first things he'll do is he'll engage with an army academic pathway for uh, an apprenticeship. And through that apprenticeship, his numeracy and literacy will be brought up to the right standard. And even at that early stage, he'll be exposed to leadership, not because we're expecting him to be a leader. We're expecting him to understand what leadership model the army adopts. And initially, the army has a values based leadership. And we talked about the values and standards the army has. But that has now changed into more of a transformational model. Um, and really, that transformational model um, talks about the positive leadership characteristics, you know, the visionary, the authentic leadership, a growth mindset, uh, creativity, all these things are what the army professes to want in its leaders. But to do that, you need to educate the raw material. So the young 16 year old is, OK, I can expect this. These are the boundaries. My boss will realistically expect me to do this in this way. I can realistically expect that. So from a very young age, you are exposed to how it's going to be. These are the rules of the game. The players may change, but the rules of the game are this. And then from that, as they climb the promotion ladder and placed in positions of authority and responsibility, it's almost like they already know it. Um, but they then need to put it into practice. And I think that's what the army is very good at is providing a safe space for young soldiers uh, to be able to practice the theory. Uh, maybe that's different because in your world, you're trying to build the aircraft in flight. Um, you know, there's no chance to land and do some major surgery. You are literally flying and suck it up, get on with it. So uh, it's more of a challenge in your world, I would suggest. Really interesting. Sorry, I want to carry on, uh, you one as well. Yeah. So just like you and I'm thinking about your, you know, perception from the sector you're coming from. It's so interesting. You know, sorry, you know, when you're thinking about, um, you know, young recruits joining you again, joining the service, is it a passing out process you have, uh, Marcus? And, you know, basically they succeed or they're not back, you know, and, and I'm thinking about our situation with exams. How do yeah. you compare those two? So uh, many years ago, so the army that I joined, you know, in, 1990 whenever it was um it was very much a case of uh it was a very large organization lots of people would apply to join the military uh, in, in actual fact you know um young offenders could avoid custodial sentences or borstals and the like by electing to join the military so that's the type of context we had so you had all walks of life uh, and it was very much a case of weed out you know find the weaknesses you're not you don't quite have what we want and therefore you haven't made it so um, you were weeded out quite quickly if you weren't up to the required standard nowadays it's the complete opposite it's about training in rather than weeding out and it's about finding a place for everybody and the um you know is there a place for somebody who has um uh, a physical disability within the military you know, OK, they quite possibly can't be an infantier, but could they be a, a cyber analyst? You know, everyone has a skill set that potentially is useful. And in a world where um, you have a finite resource and you're under pressure, you need to make it work. Um, so, yeah, definitely um, 
train in, not weed out. Dealing, and my experience, although this might be really obvious to everybody, but in my experience, I've learned much more from failure than I have from success. And I think that's just a given. Uh, anybody that, um, you know, in the education, I'm talking, I'm, you know, I'm pushing against an open door here, I think, but, you know, telling students that you're going to learn much more from your failures in life than you are from your successes. Uh, it sort of, it almost normalizes failure. It doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't mean that it's less important. It just means that it's okay. You know, and actually saying that out loud can have a profound effect. It's okay. You didn't pass. You know, we're now going to analyze why you didn't pass. And then we're going to do something about it. And that's where sort of coaching, mentoring, um, you know, and the teamwork and the influence of those individuals, all speaking to building relationships, part of emotional intelligence. But um, straightforward to a degree. But, you know, it's tough. Lots of people react to different ways to failure. Very interesting. Thank you. I'm sure we could go on and on, but thank you very much, Yuan, for joining us. Thank you. I'm gonna, what I'm going to do, um, Marcus, is pick up on your point there about uh, emotional intelligence. And I think I've got a question from, is it Tracy Harris? Are you there, Tracy, to come in with a question? I know you had a discussion in your group. Yes, but it, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, good morning. We did. Yeah, a very thought-provoking discussion and, you know, lots of things resonated with myself and for us as a group. And we came up with a question. Um, Can you share an example in your experience when you successfully managed an individual who perhaps challenged the values, um, the role or maybe a task that they were asked to do? Oh, crikey. I I probably have a few million examples. (laughs) you know, once upon a time, rewind the clock now, I was a, uh, a sergeant major. And I, as soon as I say sergeant major, it will automatically conjure up images of this sort of mustachioed disciplinarian who, you know, is very clear, walks around with a stick, etc. Well, maybe less than a moustache was me once upon a time. But part of my responsibilities as the senior soldier in that particular group was to enforce discipline. And... Um, because everybody is acutely aware of the values that we share, everyone understands because you're told that from day one and you buy into that. And uh, everyone knows the standard because we talk about it on a daily basis. And uh, when somebody falls short of that, everybody learns from that, including the individual. Um, You have this self-prophesizing circle of discipline that happens. You mess up, you're punished, you learn, you mess up again, you're punished, you learn. And depending on how many times you go around that circle, um, is largely down to the individual. Some people learn uh, harder lessons than others. Um, I had one particular individual who was um, a compulsive liar, who, um, on the face of it, everything, I just could not trust this individual. Everything he told me was false. You know, I could not work out why... I tried to reason with him. I tried the hard line approach. I tried everything within my virtual toolkit to get the best out of this individual. And uh, it simply wasn't working. It was only until I accessed his private life uh, and dug a little deeper um, that um, he uh, gave me the respect that I needed. So I, in the end, I contacted, he told me that his mother and father had passed away. I found out that this wasn't true. 
They told me they had come from a broken home. It was about as far from the truth, fairly affluent family. Um, he just created this separate world. Um, and uh, in the end, it, I became a bit of a personal mission to make sure that this soldier, there was something deeper going on here. And I was inquisitive in trying to find out. I could have dismissed it and walked away uh, and just continued to punish him. But there was something more going on and I wanted to know what it was. And it took uh, getting his father listening in on a conference call. Uh, so the youngster didn't know his father was listening in. Um, and uh, in the end, his father sort of piped up and I said, well, you, we don't realise, young man, is that your father's been listening to this conversation. Is there anything you'd like to say, Mr. X? Uh, and he sort of fairly compassionately spoke to his son and said, look, we've talked about this. Uh, and the son broke down. And what it meant was that I was able to strip down the layers to get to the root cause. And I won't bore you with the details, but the root cause of these fibs and lies. And, and once we were there, we were then able to start growing and building and uh, creating a better individual. Um, and it was a bit, it was groundbreaking for him, um, but it's very difficult. Um, and um, the discipline process is there for a reason. In my world, it's really straightforward. You know, you've done wrong. You know you've done wrong. Be disciplined. It's all forgotten. We move on. In your world, uh, it's, a, it's a long, long process. Yeah. Um, so early intervention. I'm a big fan of upstream intervention, trying to stop the problems before they manifest themselves. Uh, get in early. Authentic leadership will support you with that. You know, being approachable, a good communicator, having influence, having empathy. All these things will potentially stop the problems before they happen. But when they do happen, you need to address it. Otherwise, they will confuse your, um, uh, your kindness for weakness. And you don't want that at all. No. Thank you very much. And I think you just highlighted then the importance of coming back to relationships, isn't it? Coming yeah. back to that, you know, an emotional intelligence. Yeah. Thank you ever so much, Dior. You're Thank welcome, you. Tracy. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just going to read a couple of them in the chat now because I'm conscious that there's so many and then I'll bring somebody else in then. Um, what have we got? I've got one from Edward Jones there. Is constructive dissent accepted in the army? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we refer to that as loyal dissent. Um, and uh, uh, the word suggests that you are remaining loyal, um, but you are making a decision. And as long as uh, I think I said it to one of the chaps earlier on, as long as you're prepared to look in the mirror at the end of the day and remain accountable for what you've done, openly accountable, then I think the army accepts that. It, it, it demonstrates intelligence. It demonstrates a thinking organisation. And I think um, there's, a, there's a time and a place for it. I think you need to be intelligent enough to recognise the point where you need to turn smartly to the right and get on with it. And... Um, because you might not be exposed to the bigger picture and you might, might not make sense to you. But if you are furnished with all the information and you feel as if uh, you are employed to make a decision and you're going to make it, then as long as you're prepared to remain accountable from that, no problem at all. Uh, and in actual fact, I would encourage that to, uh, to anybody that works for me. You know, if you think that it needs to be done a slightly different way or you're going to make a call, just make sure you look in that mirror because it might come back to bite you. And of course, that takes a leap of faith as well. But yeah, no, big fan of loyal descent, big fan of mission command, let them know what I want, not how to do it. 
Thanks, Edward, for that question. Thanks, Marcus. I've got another one underneath. I've got, do you feel that the top-down leadership structure of the army results in missed opportunities to access a broader pool of knowledge and talent, especially from those in lower ranks? Ooh. Yeah, no, I, I agree to a, to a point. I think the army, part of the, the military's development and uh, education to itself is that we have a, we call it the CAL, the Centre of Army Leadership, um, and there are um, other forums that um, uh, academic and, and bright spark thinking forums where uh, doesn't you can be anonymous if you wish, but you can access those. There's one called the Wavell Room. Uh, General Wavell was a uh, uh, I forget, but um, a big fan of, of uh, developing individuals' ideas and being creative. So there's a there's an online forum called the Wavell Room. Wave all spent with a W A V E double L. Um, and it's a forum for open source ideas. I think the army's better now than it ever was in accepting that um, you, you know, the best idea might not come from its normal location. I think there's uh, elements of uh, parallel entry now. I know my brother's a police officer now, and I know that, you know, one of the chief superintendents has come from Waitrose, uh, recognizing that. She has a specific skill set, an analytical mind, problem solving uh, that, was, that would really benefit that type of organisation. So I think the military now, through necessity, is more open to it. But yes, perception is that top down restricts creativity. Um, we're getting better, but there's a journey just like you guys. Absolutely. <laughs> Interesting. Thank you for that question, Neil. Um, we're coming to a close now. I am, I am two more questions. I'm just going to see if Karen is still online. Can I bring Karen Lawrence in? Are you there, Karen? Yes, I am, Sue. Oh, hi, Karen. How are you? Mute, mute should be used to this by now, shouldn't we? So um, thank you, Marcus. Really enjoyed the morning um, and so, so much to think about. And I know our group in our group, we had a fantastic discussion around many of the elements. Um, and I just want to ask you something about around you mentioned a snow globe and those who know me will say I will often say like oh my god I'm having a snow globe moment and what I really mean by that is everything is just spinning around and you know it's very difficult then to um, sometimes see a way forward you know Um, you seem to have much a lot of clarity around the way that you um find your ways forward and certainly in the military or whether that's just you as a person I'm not sure but how do you then as a leader with um, a multitude of things going on around you how do you as a leader really maintain and not just maintain but promote those core values which actually led you into your profession in the first place how can we do that in the situation we're in with um, managing, and thank you for recognising, managing everything that we are in education at the moment with um, the COVID situation. Yeah, Karen, uh, lovely to meet you. But I think uh, there's quite a few parts to that. I think the clarity comes through training for me. So um, in complex, fast-moving, ever-changing situations, um, I tend to rely on process, um, and that keeps me straight and true. I also rely on, well, we, you, you may use it as well, but we refer to it as the condor moment. You remember the advert years ago of the chap sat there lighting a cigar when all, everything else was crumbling around him. Uh, that condor moment 
in in theory is just giving yourself five minutes to recognize what's happening what is the current situation what is happening how does it affect me and what am i going to do about it so going through pretty basic questions when you are under pressure will automatically promote a degree of clarity now your snow globe might still be pretty crazy um but hopefully you've calmed it down to a degree where you can at least see out and see the direction of travel that you need to go. So training, repetition, those are the sorts of things that support me when I'm in complex situations. Um, and I would encourage that process acronyms help, tend to help. So um, we have uh, in the event that you come across a, let's give you a scenario. So a roadside bomb is discovered before it went bang um, you would go through what's known as a four c's process and the four c's are confirm clear cordon and control now the roadside bomb could be uh, the latest policy change from local government on how to run your school uh, the first thing you need to do in the confirm process is confirm what the problem is isolate it get rid of all the chaff uh, really get down to what is the core issue here. And once you've confirmed that, you can then start doing further analysis. Uh, so the confirm and the clear, and the clear is getting a, rid of all the information that is not relevant to that particular situation. Uh, in my world, I'm confirming that it is a bomb and it's not just a dustbin. When I say clear, I'm making sure people are moving streets, cars are being moved, people are in a safe space. When I, we're talking about cordon, Cordon for me is stopping people going near the device. For you, it would be isolating that problem so it doesn't change or at least putting measures in to monitor what the situation is and how it changes. And then um, uh, control is the final part, is about controlling the situation. You are now leading the situation. You, are, you own the problem and the problem doesn't own you. So confirm, clear, cordon, control works on a roadside bomb it also works on complex situations you know as a something to hang your hat on it's a way of thinking it's a process um might not work for everybody but certainly that's an insight into how i try and do business um i try and confirm what's going on get rid of all the superficial nonsense that surrounds it isolate it and control the situation and it might turn out that you're on a you're never going to win you know, and I think it's quite powerful accepting that you can't win. Um, so it might be a case of damage limitation. It's about what you can do to what's the best, what's the next best, what's the silver solution in this situation. Um, and, uh, and like I say, uh, in my world, I can get on a radio and I can say, you know, call for help. Uh, what I would say to you is, you know, who do you call for help? You know, and who's going to come running? So when I have a particularly challenging tactical situation, I might have some helicopters on the end of a radio uh, who are going to make sure that problem goes away from me. Who's your helicopter? You know, ask yourself that. And don't ask yourself while it's actually happening. These are the sorts of questions you need to know now before the problems start coming in. You know, who are you going to call when it all goes wrong? Uh, and what can they do for you? How can you build those relationships to build organizational resilience? How is it? that they can really affect and support you might be just emotional support. Maybe that's all you need. Uh, but in my world, practical support is worth its weight in gold as well. Um, 
but yeah, no, fascinating. And there's no one answer, I'm afraid. No, I know. Oh, thank you, though. Thank you. Lots to think about. Thank you. Thanks, Karen. We often share our snow globe uh, moments. <laughs> we do. <laughs> totally understand that. Right, I'm going to ask the last question now. Well, I'm going to ask somebody to ask it. The time has flown, and we've nearly come to that point, um, Marcus, where we ask you to sum things up for us. But I just want to bring one more person in, if that's okay. I'm going to ask Trevor please, to join us. I think his question is really interesting around the innovation, etc. So I'm going to bring, if he's still online, are you there, Trevor? No, I don't think he is, unfortunately. So. Oh, that's so sad. I'd saved that one. He was asking um, around how to balance building hierarchy with enabling empathy and innovation, you know, having that opportunity. I know that's yeah. a different to ask but I don't know if you had any feelings on that so um it's a difficult one for me to answer because in my organization the hierarchy is pretty bulletproof uh mm-hmm. it exists it's rigid in its structure we have badges and emblems and physical uh accoutrements that show people you know who's in charge etc so building a hierarchy is uh, it's not something I could necessarily do um what you can do on a human level is by um uh, building sort of non-visual hierarchy. So in your smaller organization, you can turn around and say, okay, you are my go-to. You're my go-to for information on this. You know, you now have responsibility for this, that, and the other. You're the guy or you're the girl I'm going to come and speak to when I want this type of information. Almost identifying subject matter experts, creating a, a plateau, uh, an environment where people can share information. But somebody is naturally there's a natural bent towards one particular area. And all you're doing is you're tapping into that resource, building a relationship, influencing those individuals to get something back. It's very transactional in that sense. Um, but it's also empowering. And they might not have rank um, or a position of authority, but actually if you give them specific responsibilities, my experience is they tend to flourish with those. Awesome. Empathy is a is a is a, an interesting one because soldiers soldiers will sit up and listen to what I have to say for a whole host of reasons. One of them is the the rank on my shoulder. They think, well, I have to listen to him because he's he's a major and he knows what he's talking about. So that's the first way. So I, I immediately know that they have to listen to me. Um, the second one is that they recognise that oh, well, he's been around a bit. He's done some stuff, so maybe he's got something interesting to say. And then the last bit is that once they then realize how long i've been around they realize i'm a bit of a gray beard and they can turn around and say actually i can learn some stuff here um and i think having the um not being so self-important that you can constantly learn and learn from the youngest members of your organization is a powerful thing so well thank you so much it's been the time has just flown marcus i can't believe i think it's been about 45 minutes but thank you so much for the opportunity to bring people forward i know there was a lot of discussions in the break rooms and i want to thank you very much i'm going to pass over to you now to do your closing bit if that's okay and then tell yeah. you to say the goodbyes okay thank yeah you. sure so um i'm going to keep this really short and sweet i i, I want to thank you all for What's shone through for me and what I've learned this morning is that um, uh, you are in a 
tremendously difficult situation in unprecedented circumstances and times. And I think the critical path that you are on is that you are learning from each other and you're having this discussion. And I think the Academy is uh, an organisation that needs to be invested in uh, for you to be able to really, you know, pick that fruit uh, and, uh, and reap the rewards Upstream intervention is a big thing. So from me, thank you for everything you do. Um, don't give up. Keep going because uh, things will change. Uh, communicate effectively. Um, and, um, and uh, well, I, I'm off. So uh, I wish you all a, a Merry Christmas, even though it's only just around the corner. But um, please stay safe. Look after yourselves. Look after each other. Learn from each other. And uh, if we can't support each other, then who can we support? So... Um, thank you. Gobeithion eich bod wedi mwyn hair bennod hon o bodlediad yr Academy Arwynyddiaeth. Tan ysgrifiwch ar Spotify, podlediadau Apple neu Google a pheidiwch byth â cholli penod. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leadership Academy podcast. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts and never miss an episode.